2: you <smart noise>
3: Hey, folks. It's the 82nd birthday of Emmett Till, the 14-year-old boy in Chicago who was lynched in Mississippi, sparking the civil rights movement. At the White House today, President Joe Biden created the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley National Monuments in Mississippi and Illinois. In his speech, he talked about the importance of this story to American
4: history. When I was preparing his remarks, I... Uh quite frankly, and my colleagues will understand this, I found myself trying to temper my anger as I was writing it. I'm not joking. I can't fathom. I can't fathom what it must have been like. It's hard to believe I was 12 years old. And uh, I just, you know, I know no matter how much time has passed, how many birthdays, how many events, how many anniversaries. Uh, it's hard to relive this. It brings it all back. We are talking about Rev as if it happened yesterday. The images in your head, things you remember. But it's inspiring to see how many of your family have continued as mother's courage to find faith in pain, purpose in pain. That's a a remarkable thing, it seems to me. Insisting on an open casket for her murdered and, I might add, maimed and mutilated son. Fourteen years old. Fourteen years old. She said, let the people see what I've seen. Let the people see what I have seen. My God. All of us have lost children in other ways. How hard it is even to close the casket or keep it open, or to, to, what a debate it is. But to see the child that had been maimed in the country and the world saw, saw, not just heard the story of Emmett Till and his mother, as a story of a family's promise and loss. And the nation's reckoning with hate, violence, racism, overwhelming abuse of power, brutality. It's hard to fathom. Hard to fathom this even in war for me. It's hard to fathom. But today, on what we've been, uh, would, would have been Emmett, Emmett's 82nd birthday we had another chapter in the story of remembrance and healing. Just as we joined together when I signed the law in his name to make lynching a federal crime. And think how long that took for that to happen. I mean, and we screened the movie Till at the White House. Today, we joined together as I signed a proclamation designating Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley, national monument in both Illinois and the Mississippi. When we ended lynching as a matter of law, we talked about wanting to do this. But the support from the community has been so overwhelming. I thank the members of Congress for their support and, more than that, their leadership. At a time when there are those who seek to ban books, bury history, we're making it clear, crystal, crystal clear. While darkness and denialism can hide much, they erase nothing. They can hide, but they erase nothing. We can't just choose to learn what we want to know. We have to learn what we should know. We should know about our country. We should know everything, the good, the bad, the truth of who we are as a nation. That's what great nations do, and we are a great nation. That's what they do. For only with truth comes healing, justice, repair, and another step forward toward forming a more perfect union. We've got a hell of a long way to go. That's what's happening. That's what's going to happen with visitors of all backgrounds to learn the history of Emmett Till and Amy Till Mobley through our national monument. Look, telling the truth and the full history of our nation is important. It's important to our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, to our nation as a whole. I've said it before. It was the lesson I learned of coming out of not like real leaders in the Civil Rights Movement, but when I came out of the Civil Rights Movement as a kid as a public defender. And I used to, uh, you know, I used to say, think that if you pass something that was good, you can make hate go away. Hate never goes away. It just hides. It hides under the rocks. And given a little bit of oxygen by bad people, it comes roaring out again. It's up to all of us to deal with that. Up to all of us to stop it. Up to all of us. The best way to do this is with the truth. It's used in a different context, but I think it applies here. Silence is complicity. I will not be silent, nor will you be silent about what happened. There's really critical work ahead to continue the fight for racial justice and equality for all Americans, and my administration is committed to leading the path forward. And I know the members of Congress here are even more committed than that. I'm going to close with this. The reason the world saw what Mrs. Till Mobley saw was because another hero in this story, the black press. oh I'm serious. Jet Magazine, The Chicago Defender, and other newspapers and radio announcers who told the story were unflinching the bravery with which they told that story, making sure America saw saw what they saw. Ida B. Wells once said, "Quote: The way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. The way to right wrongs is to shine the light of truth on them." Well, that's our charge today. By the parent thing, do you ever think we'd be talking about banning books in America, banning history? I'm serious. The Till family, to all of you here today, I thank you for your courage, for never giving up. Never, never giving up. Before I say even what's more is on my mind, I'm not going to leave this podium. (laughs) No, I mean, it's just barbaric. Barbaric would happen. Seriously, all you moms out there, imagine the courage it took to say, let them see the courage. I thank you all for being here. And I am I know I'm considered too much of an optimist, but I believe if we keep pushing, we're going to continue to make progress. We're going to continue to make progress that's already being made. The idea that when that 14-year-old was buried, that in this Indian treaty room there were this many people of color holding powerful office, changing the direction of the
5: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
4: country would have been beyond our comprehension. And we're just getting started.
3: Well, so Miami is going to be, Miami is going to include three different sites, uh, and obviously uh, it recognizes the, uh, the importance uh, of uh, this story to American history. I'm going to bring my panel right now, uh, talk further about this, uh, because uh, it is critically important, of course, that uh, we have uh, Misalpa Santiago Ali, former senior advisor uh, at the EPA, Jones long Victoria Burke, uh, she writes with uh, NNPA, the Black Press of America, uh, we also have uh, on the panel uh, Joe Richardson, civil rights attorney. Uh, glad to have all three of you here. When we think of this story, Joe, I mean, it really speaks volumes uh, about, again, what it, what it launched. But it is still raw uh, for African Americans when you think about what took place. And even the sign where there's a sign where um, his body uh, was thrown over the bridge. Uh, where, they, where they commemorate that, uh, it's been shot up several times. And so you still have a hate uh, that exists here in this country.
6: Uh, no doubt about it, Roland. And then, in fact, I hope to uh, join uh, Deborah Watts and, and the family and, the, and, and everyone down there uh, next month for the 68th um, anniversary, uh, basically. But this is still very wrong. There's no question about it. Uh, but, you know, maybe till Um, deserves credit for starting the modern civil rights movement with the transparency of saying, I want people to know what happened to my daughter, to my son here. Um, And so that open casket got that thing started. And even as we go along, after all these years, you look at the work that the foundation is doing, um, uh, Deborah Watts and and, and everyone and her daughter and and, and other folks in the Emmett Till family, we, they are still, they are very much like um, like mothers and, and matriarchs to uh, those that have lost people for modern-day lynchings, um, you know, whether it's Michael Brown or whether it's Trayvon Martin. They still have that role. And just now, as, as the president said, this bill got signed, the, the Anti-Lynching Act. That, that was last year. I mean, that was recently. So this is still very raw. And then this war has many fronts, including uh, probably the most important one is voting. We're still talking about what's going on uh, in the South. We're still reeling from the Supreme Court's decision almost 10 years ago now that basically allows uh, people that want to uh, discriminate and do voter suppression uh, to do so. Um, And even uh, Alabama has defied the Supreme Court, even now, only in the last few days, redrew the districts to make one Black district when they were supposed to make two. And so this is still raw because it's still happening. The underlying notions of hate, of ignorance, of uh, indifference, at the very least, uh, acquiescence, uh, and and silence, all of which uh, is going to go to the negative as it pertains to being on the front uh, related to civil rights, uh, treating it for what it actually is, and not acting like we have made it, because we haven't. Maybe it looks different, but the last recent few years, it doesn't look a whole lot different at all, to be perfectly honest with you. You still have modern-day lynchings occurring. You still have a lot of problems uh, that are going on, and we're glad that the family is there. Uh, we're glad that the president is acting, and we hope to not only have the memories uh, that these uh, monuments will give, but continuing in corresponding action.
3: You know, Lauren, when you hear the president talk about the importance of the black press, I and mean, the reality is uh, without... Uh, black-owned media, you would not have seen this story uh, get as much well, attention as it did, it, uh, and it still speaks. It still uh, speaks to how uh, critically McCullough, important yeah. it is uh, for a uh, black-owned media to tell a story that many other people uh, do not uh, tell.
7: Yeah, so much of the Emmett Till Till story, obviously, is about the black press and the fact without the black press that we would not have known about this story. And obviously, without Mamie Till doing what she did, we would not have known about this story in the same way. Uh, I do think that um, I've kind of grown tired of, uh, as great as this is and as unprecedented as this is, I have grown tired of sort of monuments and proclamations when, in fact, there's policy that can be glued to this as well. Uh, in the form of qualified immunity, in the form of funding defense attorneys around this country. Uh, even if somebody just announced something about the Innocence Project, uh, money going to them, something, uh, you know, to the points just made, Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, uh, nobody paid a price for that. You know, uh, Zimmerman got away with that. Uh, uh, the the cop that shot Michael Brown got away with that. and. Uh, Uh, It it seems like, to me, uh, the real sort of monuments that we should be building right now are built by policy and not just by granite and stone or whatever this is going to be. And it's not that I'm, you know, in any way against this commemoration, because, of course, it's good to commemorate and remember history. But at the same time, I wish that this announcement had been joined by some policy because I do think the Democratic Party has a great deal of problems when it comes to talking about things like qualified immunity, which, of course, they don't want to talk about. There was a famous uh, caucus call in the Democratic Party, uh, I think it was two years ago, uh, where there was a big argument about whether or not they should even be talking about anything involved in the Black Lives Matter agenda around police brutality, because a lot of Democrats feel they're losing votes. But the fact that the party doesn't even want to talk about policy but does want to talk talk about monuments? I do think is slightly problematic here, when in 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 contemporary days we still see things like uh, Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. When I was a kid, I I watched the Central Park Park Five close up, living in New York. So that for me, uh, this without policy is is a little bit uh, uh, a little bit lacking in in something more. It has it can't just be talking anymore. And it can't just be. Uh, a monument anymore. There does have to be something happening on the policy level.
3: Well, you can't, you can't get the policy unless it goes through Congress. And the reality is, Democrats can't pass anything by themselves. They don't control the House, uh, and even they do control the Senate, barely control the Senate. And so, anything dealing with policy, especially qualified immunity, has also got to involve Republicans.
7: I think that. The fact that nobody's even oh, no, no, talking no, no, about... Lauren, hold on one second. That was from
3: Mustafa. Mm-hmm. No,
8: no, we understand the difficulties that are currently going on, but everything that Lawrence said is exactly right. Um, we, you know, you know, we can't do these profunctory types of things anymore. you got to put some meat on the bones, if you will, to make sure that we are actually moving toward justice. Um, because when we don't do that, we continue to set up these situations where folks continue to be prey because that's exactly what Emmett Till was. He was prey for Ray Bryan. He was prey for J.W. Milliam back there on August 28, 1955. Um, And it was legal in some aspects because when it went to to the court, they let him go. And then in 2020, when we brought stuff back again, once again, there was no prosecution for his death. Um, So we got to begin to make sure there's real policy um, that helps to change these dynamics.
3: All right, folks. Uh, hold tight one second. Gotta go to break. and come back. We're gonna talk about this case out of California, excessive abuse case. Uh, another example of what we're dealing with as uh, uh, impacting African Americans. Of course, Black Lives Matter uh, here on Black Lives Matter Plaza in D.C. It is still an issue. The country still uh, has not had a true reckoning when it comes to that. So we will back. we we'll back right here Rolling, on the Black Sun Network.
9: Hatred on the streets, a horrific scene, white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence.
3: White people are losing their damn minds
10: I'm Dr. Greg Carr,
0: and coming up on the next Black Table, thinking about the Black Freedom Movement in a global way. Dr. John Monroe joins us to discuss his book, The Anti-Colonial Front, which maps the social justice movement in the United States and its impact internationally, from Asia to Africa, and how movements like anti-communism were used to slow down racial equality, like critical race theory today.
2: A critical race theory today, communism back then, is essentially mobilized to shut down any challenges to a given system of
0: power. Connecting the civil rights movement to colonialism on the next Black Table, exclusively here on the Black Star Network.
9: Next on The Frequency with me, Dee Barnes, actress, writer, and advocate Rae Don Chong is here to discuss her childhood and break down her life in Hollywood, a show you don't want to miss. Even at my peaky-peak-peak when I was getting a lot of stuff, as soon as I was working a ton, I heard people whispering, oh, we don't want to pay her because we're giving her a break. Only on The Frequency on the Black Star Network. On a next A Balanced Life with me, Dr. Jackie, how are you being of service to others? Doing for someone besides yourself is such a big part of living a balanced life. We'll talk about what that means, the generation that missed that message, and the price that we're all paying as a result. Well,
10: now all I see is mama getting up in the morning, going to work, maybe dropping me off at school, then coming back home at night. And then I really didn't have any type of time with the person that really was there to nurture me and prepare me and to show me what uh, a
9: life looked like and what service looked like. That's all on the next A Balanced Life with me, Dr. Jackie, here at Black Star Network. Me, Sherry Shepherd, and you know what you're watching, Roland Martin, unfiltered. <laughs>
3: Uh, We continue to cover stories dealing with police uh, misconduct, uh, and there's a story out of California that speaks to this. The black California woman seen on body cam footage being punched by a L.A. County Sheriff's deputy while holding her three-week-old baby has filed a federal civil rights lawsuit. Uh, Yayo Russell was riding in a car when deputies pulled him over on July 14th in Palmdale, California. The deputies made all other passengers exit the vehicle. Deputies then threatened to take her son away because there was no car seat. Russell began to scream while begging the deputies to let her sister come get her baby. They refused. Russell was then punched in the face twice by a deputy, causing the infant to dangle upside down with one deputy pulling on the baby's leg. Russell was arrested, spent more than four days in jail, and was separated from her baby. The lawsuit alleges excessive force Wrongful arrest, unconstitutional custom practice or policy, and municipal liability for failure to properly train its officers. Um, so, folks, pull a volume up here. You go see what's happening here. So, go to the beginning, and then I want us to play it again so people can hear and see exactly what took place
9: but i'm it not about to let y'all distorted. listen okay don't so me bro i care about my baby and y'all don't my baby is black and mexican bro i'm not he don't i don't have custody of my baby they have custody of my baby so what's going on me no because y'all doing
10: it
9: ан- i swear to god on, on everything yeah. i love bro y'all not taking You're my baby from the horse. y'all gonna have to shoot me dead to take from my arm. You're gonna Y'all gonna have to shoot me dead too quick. I'm not about to let you take my baby On my life. I'm not about to. The no. Bro, move! Move! If I'm getting my baby, bro!
10: Get
11: not about to take my baby, bro! i my, my baby three baby. months! Stop, my baby stop,
10: three weeks! You're gonna hurt him, You're hurting the baby, bro! All my life, you're not taking my baby, bro! Woo!
9: Woo! 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 You hurting the Bro, I'm not letting go. You're breaking a leg, bro. Hey, get this recording. Oh. Ah. Go, baby. Ah.
4: They're wrong! They're wrong,
3: They're wrong! All <laughs> right, folks, joining us now from California is our attorney, Jamon Hicks. Uh, Jamon, glad to have you here. So what did the cops say, The rationale for punching her in the face? That, that, that's how you detain somebody?
12: We've not yet seen the police reports to justify it. In my experience, what they will likely have said is that she was resisting arrest or being somehow violent to the officers. I expect to see that somewhere in the report because they would have drafted the report before have seen this video.
3: Um, And obviously, she was distraught. Uh, She was saying she was not going to let go of the baby. Uh, But uh, man, going to, the extent, going to the extent to haul off a puncher in the face, uh, that was absolutely shocking to see.
12: Very shocking. And, and what's even more disturbing is that her sister was at the scene. And so the deputies could have easily just given the child to the sister or another family member if they were that concerned, as opposed to trying to separate the mother from the child. And there's absolutely no justification for punching her in the face.
3: And, well, and, and we hear her saying, I'll give it to my sister. So if she's there, why not use her?
12: Absolutely. And she, even before this video, um, there is another young lady that's sitting down, that's holding a baby as well. And she tells the deputies that the police are on uh, that. I'm sorry, that the sister is on the way. And she was pleading for them to just let the children go with the sister because there was a car seat in the trunk. The only reason they weren't using the car seat was because there were multiple people in the car, so there was no space. So they could have easily ensured that the child was in the car seat and with the sister.
3: I'm curious. Does the law in California state that you can arrest somebody if a child is not in the car seat?
12: This would be an infraction at most. If had it not gone to the use of force, what what could have very easily happened under the law would be to allow the child to go to family member and then to cite uh, Miss Russell for, for failure to have a child seat. But that is not something that you arrest someone over.
3: Or what what you do is you cite her and then say, "Ma'am, put that car seat in the car."
12: Absolutely. Especially because, again, if when you listen to the entire video, they tell them that the car seat is in the trunk. So they could have just said, OK, get the car seat, put it in and put the child in. And if there was a concern because there were other children not in the car seat again, there was another responsible party that could have taken the children. And it's a sight out. It's not an arrest. Uh, when did this take place? This took place July 14th of last year, so of 2022.
3: Um, That's been more than a year. So what has happened in the last year?
12: Well, unfortunately, the video wasn't released until a week ago. Um, So the family did not and had not even retained an attorney because she was fighting child endangerment charges in the criminal system. And there's an open pending DCFS investigation. So she has been focused on that portion and not any civil lawsuit until we filed our lawsuit yesterday.
3: Uh, Any response from the police chief, excuse me, the sheriff, uh, regarding this case?
12: Sheriff Luna did come out, hold a press conference when he released the video. He has indicated that the captain of the station has been transferred and the officer, the deputy that was the one that punched, it's our understanding that he's been relieved of duties. Um, But the concern is why it took so long for this video to be released in the first place.
3: Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. All right, Uh, we still appreciate you joining us. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is, uh, uh, Joe, one of these cases that, uh, unfortunately, we, cont- we continue to see happen. Uh, and, again, if you're cops, th- this is how you detain somebody? You punch <clears throat> them in the face?
6: Yeah, I mean, you know, nothing that went on would rise to the level justifying her being uh punched in the face, among other things, that doesn't make them any more secure. It's going to be interesting to see what's happening and that's what I would have asked Brother Hicks is whether he foresees at all any change with the new sheriff. This took place under the previous regime uh, you know which uh, got, uh, got voted out of office. Uh, it does look like uh, Sheriff Luna took his time getting this, getting this uh, video out. So I don't know you know how well that bodes, having paid a lot of attention, Uh, To the sheriff's department, at least day to day. So it's going to be interesting to see whether or not this is just going to be more of the same, or, you know, if this is maybe some kind of step, even though they slow footed it a bit this time, uh, that the sheriff's department is going to get better at transparency because we'd be a lot further along if this discussion had happened a year ago when it was supposed to.
3: Um, So often we see these cases, uh, Mustafa, uh, and uh, you have folks who, you know, let the cops off. Uh, And and it's just, again, the the actions, to me, uh, uh, is what is just absolutely uh, shocking uh, and astounding in terms of, like, that's how you want to get somebody to stop. You punch them in the face.
8: I mean, it's atrocious. Um, You know, on a DNA level, it kind of hits you because it reminds you of when black babies were stripped from their mother's arms. And for him not to understand that she has a three-week-old child and not wanting that child to be separated from her shows the dehumanization of the way that they see black women. You can't escape it. I mean, you had five, six officers there in that space, and none of them stepping in and saying, you know what, let's make a phone call. Let's have a paramedic come over. Let's have a social worker come into this space. And, you know, and again, all you had to do was give somebody just a basic ticket um, for not having a car seat or having the baby in the car seat. But you got to go deeper than that, Rolling, You know, the National Center for Women and Policing has uh, done a study before, and it showed that 40 percent of officers have domestic violence going on in their homes. And the general public is around 10 to 13 percent. So it, it shows you how, uh, unfortunately, some officers, not saying all, interact in their own families. So imagine if they're out there on the streets, how they're going to interact.
3: Lauren?
7: Yeah, I mean, I, I think what happens in these videos a lot of times is the police, uh, rightly or wrongly, and in this case probably wrongly, uh, they, get, they get, police get annoyed when you, when you don't do what they tell you to do, like right away, particularly if it's a, a fairly basic command. But it is interesting to note that they were stopped for a headlight infraction. So they were stopped for some nonsense, nonviolent headlight infraction. The headlights were out. And then some one of the cops uh, alleges that someone smelled of alcohol. So then everybody has to get out of the car. So maybe they were going to run a field sobriety test. Who knows what they were going to do? But one would think that uh, that these uh, the all of this money that we see getting allocated in these jurisdictions for um, for to de-escalate and to train cops to do this and that. We never seem to to see any of that training reflected in any of these videos. This was just a year ago. And just think, this is after we see all of what we've already seen when it comes to police brutality in this country. Uh, so I guess they're gonna get her on failure to obey or resisting, it can't be resisting arrest. Arrested for what? So it's probably gonna be a, a BS failure to obey charge, I guess. Uh, that that is involved in this. But this is a great example of, of, of the police being too involved in American life. And then when they do get involved, they are a negative force when they shouldn't be a negative force. Many of these police cars in many jurisdictions say words on them like, we're here to help or something like that. Well, if you're here to help, let's see that. Let's see that in what should have been a relatively minor stop in this particular situation.
3: Well, but what it also does, Joe, it gives us another example. When you look at most of these cases involving African Americans, it's nearly always a basic traffic stop.
7: Right. Right. Yeah.
6: <laughs>
3: and then it escalates.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, you know. Busted taillight. You know, something minor. I mean, th- the fact of the matter is, the police can pull you over for just about anything, and it is most of the time, something that is super minor, where the discretion to stop perhaps a white person normally is not utilized, exercised, at least not nearly as much. And so it starts there and escalates into something else, where people get hurt seriously. This is serious injury, by the way, uh, where somebody gets killed, where somebody gets shot. and, And it starts off with next to nothing, because those particular small things are used as pretexts in order to search cars, uh, take people out of them, uh, and create problems. And this woman, it was protecting her child. And I don't blame her, something that most men can't understand, at least not quite the same way. Uh, And so, yeah, it always starts with little to nothing, because that's what they want to do. You know, here she was in a little Cadillac, CTS, or whatever else. So they figured they'd go ahead and do what it is that they felt like they needed to do. And it starts from there and escalates. And it's another situation that did not have to escalate. If she should have been pulled over at all, you're talking about an infraction at most, right? You give her the infraction, and you go along your merry way. And that's that. It didn't have to be all this. But once again, fortunately, I guess we ought to be glad she's alive. We shouldn't be thinking of it that way. There ought to be a federal lawsuit, et cetera. But even this, as bad as it came out, could have come out worse because it wouldn't have been out of character for it to come out worse, given the uh, reputation of police in general, the actual things that have happened, and on some level, the L.A. Sheriff's Department as well.
3: Yep. Well, this is, unfortunately, uh, is par for the course whenever we have to uh, do these stories. And so it just keeps happening over and over and over again. All right, folks, uh, got to go to break. We'll be, we be back. Roll about Unfiltered. On the Black Star Network, don't forget to support us in what we do. Join our Bring the Funk fan club uh, by uh, contributing uh, to our efforts. Uh, you can see your check and money order at P.O. Box 57196. Washington DC 20037-0196. Cash app dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zell Roland at dot Martin.com. Roland at Roland Martin Unfiltered.com. And of course, you can also download our Black Star Network app. Of course, we're uh, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku. Amazon Fire TV, Xbox One, Samsung Smart TV, uh, and of course, our 24-hour streaming channel, now available on Amazon News. Simply go to Amazon Fire, click Amazon News. You can check us out. If you have Alexa, you can also say, Alexa, play news from Black Star Network. Also, we're available on Plex TV. So if you have Plex TV, simply search for Black Star Network or find us on the Live TV option under News and Opinion. And do not forget, get a copy of my book, White Fear, How the Browning of America is Making White Folks Lose Their Minds. Available bookstores nationwide. uh, You order through Amazon. And of course, download a copy on Audible. We'll be right back.
11: For decades, the tobacco industry has deliberately targeted black communities and kids with marketing for menthol cigarettes. It's had a devastating impact on black health. Tobacco use claims 45,000 black lives every year. It's the number one cause of preventable death. In the 1950s, less than 10% of black smokers used menthol cigarettes. Today, it's 85%. Menthol cools and numbs the throat, making it easier for kids to start smoking. Menthol also increases addiction, making it harder for smokers to quit. Menthol cigarettes are a big reason why black Americans have a harder time quitting smoking and die at higher rates from smoking-related diseases like cancer, heart disease, and stroke. It's time to stop big tobacco from profiting off black lives. An FDA ban on menthol cigarettes will improve black health, save lives, and protect future generations from addiction. Learn more at tobaccofreekids.org banmenthol.
9: on a next A Balanced Life with me, Dr. Jackie. How are you being of service to others? Doing for someone besides yourself is such a big part of living a balanced life. We'll talk about what that means, the generation that missed that message and the price that we're all paying as a result.
10: now all I see is mama getting up in the morning, going to work, maybe dropping me off at school, then coming back home at night. And then I really didn't have any type of time with the person that really was there to nurture me and prepare me and to show me what uh, a life looked like and what service looked like.
1: Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet.
0: at purdueglobal.edu.
9: That's all on the next A Balanced Life with me, Dr. Jackie, here at Black Star Network.
10: This is Essence Atkins. What's the love, King of R&B, Raheem Devon.
9: It's me, Sherry Shepard, and you know what you watching. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
3: Folks, a police informant says he saw a dry run of Malcolm X's 1965 assassination a week prior to it happening. And a new witness at the scene says authorities never interviewed him. Standing next to civil rights attorney Ben Crump and co-counsel Ray Hanlon, Mustafa Hassan, previously known as Richard Melwin Jones, who was standing with Malcolm X, read his affidavit about what he saw the day Malcolm X was murdered in Manhattan's Audubon Ballroom. Watch this.
13: I, Mustafa Hassan, previously known as Richard Melwin Jones, being duly sworn, hereby deposed, and say, Number one, I have personal knowledge of the facts stated in this affidavit and certify that the following statements are true. Number two, I am. Executing this affidavits freely and voluntarily. Number three, I'm over 18 years of age. My date of birth is don't give your date of birth. Don't give your date of birth. Number four, I'm fully competent to make this affidavit and have personal knowledge of the facts stated in this affidavit. Number five. I was a member of the Organization of Afro American Unity, acronym OAAU, founded in 1964 by El Haj Malik El Shabazz, also known as Malcolm X. Number six, on or about February 21st, 1965, I was present in the Audubon Ballroom at. 3940 Broadway at West 165th Street in Manhattan, New York. I assisted with a security detail when Malcolm X delivered his speech. I was initially assigned to be in one of the aisles of the Audubon, subsequently one of the lieutenants higher in the OAAU chain of command structure instructed me to move towards the entrance to the uh, ballroom. <clears throat> Number eight. As Malcolm X began his speech, a disturbance occurred when someone yelled, "Nigger, get your hand out of my pocket. Immediately thereafter, Malcolm X Step forward and asked everyone to stay calm to de escalate the uh, situation. Now, all of a sudden, number nine, there was a loud explosion that immediately caused further disruption, capturing everyone's attention. Now, a series of gunshots, number 10, then rang out from another direction, and I immediately ran from my post in the entrance and witnessed Malcolm X being shot. Number 11, I immediately started to make my way from the back of the Audubon where I had been posted and towards the stage where Malcolm X was located. However, the scene became chaotic as people frantically ran around seeking exits to cover and protect themselves. Number 12, I saw a man running down the aisle towards the exit where I had been posted with a gun in his hand. I made the decision to attempt to stop this person because he had a gun in his hand and was heading directly towards me. Number 13, I managed to knock this person down and I continued towards the stage where Malcolm X was lying on his back surrounded by his followers. I know now that the identity of the man with the gun is Talmadge X Hayer, also known as Thomas Hagan. When I arrived at the stage, I saw that Malcolm X was in grave condition, seemingly close to death. And as a result, my extreme distress and anger, I turned attention back to the man who I had seen running away, knowing that he had a part of responsibility for what I had just witnessed. Number 16. I would later see the same man outside as he was being beaten by Malcolm's followers, while a group of policemen who suddenly showed up on the scene asked if he was with us, while at the same time holding back Malcolm's followers from beating him. Can you repeat that? Yes. I would later see the same man outside as he was being beaten by Malcolm's followers while a group of policemen who suddenly showed up on the scene asking, is he with us? While at the same time holding back Malcolm's followers from beating him. From my vantage point, this was an attempt by the police to assist in him getting away. Rather than allow the man to get away, I reached out and grabbed the man by his collar to prevent him from escaping. As evidence in the attached photograph that you'll see, you'll see me grabbing Talmadge hair while a police officer tried to hold, tried to come between us in Exhibit A. Number 17, when he was in police custody, then I went back inside the Audubon and observed on stage Sister Betty Shabazz Malcolm X wife, Sister Yuri Kochiyama, a co-member of the OAAU, and others surrounding Malcolm's prone body. There are photographs of myself and other individuals trying to assist Malcolm in Exhibit B. Number 18, I later observed Malcolm X being removed from the Audubon as he was placed on a stretcher and then on a gurney to be taken to the hospital. I can be seen escorting Malcolm to the hospital outside of the Audubon as I help clear the way on the street to get him to the hospital as quickly as possible. Number 20. I later discovered one of the men assisting Malcolm was Eugene Roberts, an undercover agent with the Bureau of Special Services and Investigation in the New York City Police Department, NYPD, and Raymond A. Woods, another undercover agent, with BOSSI, B-O-S-S-I, in the New York Police Department, was also present at the assassination. 21, I know Eugene Roberts has stated he believed he witnessed a dry run of Malcolm X's assassination on February 15th In 1965. I can attest that there were previous attempts on Malcolm X's life, and I believe I witnessed one earlier. After police and medical officials removed Malcolm's body from the Audubon, Sister Kochiyama stated that Ray Wood is said to have been seen running out of the Audubon and was one of the two people picked up by the police. I agree with Yuri Kochiyama. Number 23, there were no uniformed policemen in or around the Audubon the day Malcolm X was murdered compared to previous speeches and events where Malcolm was present. Number 24, to this day, despite my presence inside and outside of the Audubon on the day of the assassination, law enforcement never attempted to interview or attain a statement from me regarding what I had seen, heard, and actually did on that day. Number 25, after Malcolm's assassination, I was concerned that the lack of law enforcement's focus on myself could change to interest in myself. I became so disillusioned by what I had seen and experienced that I had made arrangements to and did leave the country for a number of months as I sought a new residence for myself and my family. This was done out of concern for my and my family's safety and where I believe the United States as a society was headed. Number 26, I am aware that NYPD officials claim that Malcolm X exaggerated assassination attempts on his life. They believe Malcolm X's complaints and attempts attempts on his life were a publicity stunt. After he contacted NYPD in July of 64, after he was approached in his car by two men when he arrived home that evening, I believe that Malcolm X's claims were valid because I personally witnessed one such attempt earlier in 1964. Under penalty of perjury, I hereby declare and affirm that the above-mentioned statement is true and correct to the best of my knowledge.
3: Lauren, I want to start with you. Um, There was a uh, docu-series on Netflix uh, where uh, uh, a brother here in D.C. Uh, really examined a lot of things involved here, uh, and and laid out that without a doubt, uh, they allowed the killer to go away, and he remained free, and then became a
7: prominent New Jersey uh, activist. That's right. He he busted that open. That was Abdur Rahman <clears throat> Muhammad who uh, he calls himself a citizen journalist. To me, he's better than most journalists that call themselves full-time journalists. I think he covered a lot of the territory that we heard today, certainly not in this level of detail. I thought Ben Crump and uh, everyone at the press conference really gave a a really full uh, level of detail. They had photos. They had video. uh, You know, they had pointed out exactly where... Uh, Mustafa Hassan was in those old videos. It was pretty uh, spectacular in that sense to have somebody living who could point themselves out in those videos in 1965. Uh, The only thing is that um, I think what this requires is the government to release what they have. And uh, Mohammed, in his documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X?, which I think is still on Netflix, uh, he was making that point. He had actually talked to a police officer, a New York City police officer who was still alive in that documentary. And they brought a lot of this up that, in fact, uh, there was a, a, a lot more to the death of Malcolm X than anybody ever knew. The fact that we're sitting here 58 years later without knowing the fullness of what happened is spectacularly crazy. And if it wasn't for Mr. Muhammad and his documentary, we would not know what we know now. But really, a lot of these documents should just be released.
3: That right there, to me, I think is the most important thing here, Joe. Um, how in the hell uh, are we still not don't have access to all of the documents?
6: Right. I mean, at the end of the day, everybody knows that um, uh, the government was watching this. They were sitting on it, probably multiple agencies. We all know. I mean, you know, we can go back historically most of these things in co- of consequence. I mean, you know, you know, we can go back to, well, actually, it would be going forward It'd be a couple of years, but even Martin's death. Dr. King's death, there were things going on. I mean, you know, this this guy, uh, you know, James Earl Ray gets away. Nobody finds him. Nobody gets him. There's always something else there as it pertains to, particularly somebody like Malcolm X, who was followed to Mecca, who was followed around everywhere, and they used the conflict. I believe the government used the conflict uh, between the nation and he uh, to put them in front of whatever the government wanted to have done. And so they watched it. They acquiesced to it. Um, And they may have even helped it somehow. But let's take the guesswork out of it. After all these years, we ought to know what the role of the government was because there should be transparency. And hopefully that can be a a lesson, another lesson learned about what has to happen as it pertains to these particular things. There should be transparency so that we know we can take the guesswork out of what we already uh, believe um, uh, to be true.
3: Uh, It it really is uh, astounding, Mustafa, uh, that uh, the government continues to hold these documents uh, and not wanting to completely come clean, whether it's NYPD or the FBI.
8: Yeah, and we also understand the time period that we're operating in. um, Back then, I should say, with J. J. Edgar Hoover. And we've seen both the stories uh, and documents, some documents have come out about how They were following black leaders, how they saw black leaders um, as a problem because they were rallying people. They were fighting for uh, policy changes, all these different types of things. So, you know, once something is sort of infused into a system, it is very difficult to extract it from that system. Um, So we have to continue to push. That's why we got to continue to get the right people in positions. And if we truly want to make sure that humanity becomes a reality inside of our country then we have to do, continue to do the work the Holy Quran says that if a person kills someone it is as if he has killed all of humanity when dr. King was killed humanity was lessened and of course when El Haz Malik el- shabazz was killed humanity once again was weakened
3: um, I you know Lauren you were you know from, from New York uh, and I mean let, let's just be honest. Uh, what you have here, folks, who are protecting individuals who likely are still alive.
7: Oh, absolutely. You know, I almost went up to New York to see this press conference in person. Um, and yeah, so what's happening here, and Mustafa just talk, t- touched on it, you know, it's not only the J. Edgar Hoover era, it's the era that we live in right now. We're having a battle over history And you can bet that some of these records that everyone is hiding, the FBI and uh, likely the New York City Police Department, are the types of records that black people are going to be really pissed off at. And, of course, not just black people. Anybody who's interested in history and the truth is going to be pissed off to find out that the government was involved in the death and the murder of Malcolm X. I mean, that is where this is headed. That's where everybody had suspected that in the first place. And there's there's a reason why these documents are not are not available. It makes no sense that they're not available, of course, uh, because again, here we are, 58 years later. I'm not sure why they can't be available, other than the political implications in the situation.
3: <clears throat> um, that, that is it. And and when we when we look at again how this continues to uh, play out, Joe. Um, they don't want to be honest, and what it also speaks to is his entire organization, the nation of Islam, they were infiltrated by federal undercover agents.
6: Right absolutely. And so even to that point, um, you know there's you know there were people that may have been doing what they were doing. Uh, there were some in the nation of Islam that were against Malcolm, of course. I think we understand that. But there were plenty that had infiltrated as well. And so, you know, there's something to be said for separating uh, all of that out and understanding that as much as possible. I- I'm certain that we would find out that the involvement is deeper than they thought, than, than we all thought, for as much as we all thought. It's probably more than that. It's probably deeper than that. And to the point that was just made, it almost certainly involved people that are still alive. Uh, and so, therefore, because of that, uh, be- between the power of uh, media, uh, social media, dissemination of information, etc., cetera, they're probably scared there'd be a drive to start to arrest some of those folks, just like we were trying to arrest the lady that was involved in the Emmett Till murder. You know what I mean? So, therefore, they're probably trying to, you know, lay low as much as they can, particularly while people that have not been brought to justice at all that could be uh, are still uh, lying out there. And so you know, here we go again. We're continuing on. But, you know, we understand that uh, this web of deception um, is uh, continuing. It doesn't mean it's not there. Uh, The fact that they're not giving it up, as it were, as yet, does not mean that we don't know uh, that there is something nefarious is going on. um, And there's a lot to be uncovered. And the beginning of uh, apology, turnaround, et cetera, uh, is transparency. You have to show us what you have.
3: Uh, Indeed. All right, folks, hold tight one second. We come back uh, we'll talk with uh, the new president, Rainbow Push Coalition. Lots to talk about. You're watching Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network.
9: hatred on the streets, a horrific scene, a white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence.
3: Soil, white people are losing their damn minds
9: On the next A Balanced Life with me, Dr. Jackie, how are you being of service to others? Doing for someone besides yourself is such a big part of living a balanced life. We'll talk about what that means, the generation that missed that message, and the price that we're all paying as a result. Well, now all
10: I see is mama getting up in the morning, going to work, maybe dropping me off at school, then coming back home at night, and then I really didn't have any type of time with the person that really was there to nurture me and prepare me and to
9: show me what uh, a life looked like and what service looked like. That's all on the next A Balanced Life with me, Dr. Jackie, here at Black Star Network. Next on The Frequency with me, Dee bonds actress, writer, and advocate, Ray Don Chong is here to discuss her childhood and break down her life in Hollywood, a show you don't wanna miss. Well, even at my peaky, peak, peak when I was getting a lot of stuff, as soon as I was working a ton, I heard people whispering, oh, we don't wanna pay her because we're giving her a break. Only on The Frequency on the Black Star Network.
11: For decades, the tobacco industry has deliberately targeted black communities and kids with marketing for menthol cigarettes. It's had a devastating impact on black health. Tobacco use claims 45,000 black lives every year. It's the number one cause of preventable death. In the 1950s, less than 10% of black smokers used menthol cigarettes. Today, it's 85%. Menthol cools and numbs the throat, making it easier for kids to start smoking. Menthol also increases addiction, making it harder for smokers to quit. Menthol cigarettes are a big reason why Black Americans have a harder time quitting smoking and die at higher rates from smoking-related diseases like cancer, heart disease, and stroke. It's time to stop big tobacco from profiting off Black lives. An FDA ban on menthol cigarettes will improve Black health, save lives, and protect future generations from addiction. Learn more at tobaccofreekids.org slash banmenthol. Next
9: on The Frequency with me, Dee Barnes, actress, writer, and advocate, Ray Don Chong is here to discuss her childhood and break down her life in Hollywood, a show you don't want to miss. Well, even at my peaky, peak, peak, when I was getting a lot of stuff, as soon as I was working a ton, I heard people whispering, oh, we don't want to pay her because we're giving her a break. Only on The Frequency on the Black Star Network
3: 0196. The Cash App is Dollar Sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zale is Roland at Roland In
14: My early days on the road, I learned, well, first of all, as a musician, uh, I studied not only uh, piano, but I was also drummer and percussion. I was all city. Percussion as well. So I was one of the best in the city on percussion. There you go. Also studied uh, trumpet, uh, cello, violin, and bass, and any other instrument I could get my hand mm-hmm. on. And 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 with that study, I learned again what was for me. I learned to what what it meant to do what the instruments in the orchestra meant to each other in the relationships. So that prepared me to be a leader. That prepared me to lead orchestras and to conduct orchestras. That prepared me to know, uh, to be a leader of men, they have to respect you and know that you know the music. You have to be the teacher of the music. You have to know the music better than anybody. There you go. Right, so you can't walk in unprepared.
6: I'm Murray, the executive producer of the new Sherry Shepherd Talk Show. This is your boy Earthquake. And you're tuned in to Roland Martin Unfiltered.
3: Jayla Veal has been missing from Colleen, Texas, since June 29th. The 13-year-old is 5 feet tall, weighs 98 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. Anyone with information about Jay LaVille is urged to call the Colleen, Texas, Police Department at 254-501-8830, 254-501-8830. New York federal judge rejects a request to change her ruling, allowing NFL coach Brian Flores' racial discrimination lawsuit to proceed to trial. Uh, The decision allowed Flores to sue the NFL and three of its teams, the Denver Broncos, New York Giants, and the Houston Texans, over allegations of discrimination against him and other black coaches. Flores, currently serving as a defensive coordinator for the Minnesota Vikings, filed the lawsuit in February of 2022 claiming the league's hiring and promotion practices were plagued with racism. Judge Valerie Caproni said the coaches' experiences raised profound concerns about the league's history of systematic discrimination against black players, coaches, and managers. A trial date has not been scheduled. Uh, I- I'll say this here, I doubt very seriously, um, Joe, they want this thing to go to trial because discovery could reveal a whole lot.
6: Yeah, discovery could be damning. And then the other part is in a league that seventy percent black, uh, uh, black players, uh, and I believe thirty franchises. And around the time Brian Flores filed this, there was one black coach. If there is a precedent that goes all the way to trial, it's going to turn the NFL's coaching ranks upside down. And I'm not sure they want that either. So they're better off settling the case and not having something hard and fast that actually changes the law permanently so that perhaps on its face, by virtue of their having just one black coach under these circumstances, uh, it's not going to pass the smell test. And if there is a precedent uh, that Brian Flores wins, uh, it it has the potential to turn things on its ear.
3: You know, but the thing here, Mustafa, uh, that, uh, you know, is important, they, they need to be on the record. Remember, they sell the Colin Kaepernick lawsuit. We just saw Dan Snyder, uh, where after the team was sold, they admitted how he withheld millions from other NFL teams, uh, how he sexually harassed an employee, uh, and he was heavily involved uh, in uh, in all sort of other shenanigans. And so these owners have always protected each other when it comes to their dirt. I would really hope this thing goes to trial.
8: Yeah, I'm the exact same way. You know, it's easy for these billionaires uh, to write checks, um, to, you know, make sure that things disappear. But we really need to, uh, once again, put the light of day on these issues and make sure that people understand the dynamics that have been going on behind the scenes. We saw, you know, before how they used to say, well, you know, you can't be a quarterback because you don't have the intelligence because you're African-American. And then, of course, we, you know, made sure that we broke that glass ceiling. Uh, now we just gotta make sure that the, you know, these things that are happening in relationship to coaches and uh, and even ownership begins to change.
3: Um, it's just greatly frustrating, Joe. Uh, to continue to see these things happen over and over and over again uh, and this league not be held accountable and they just simply keep raking in the billions of dollars
6: yeah and it continues to perpetuate and uh, so the question becomes uh, you know do we ever get to the point you know back before social media uh and back before uh desegregation you know and you know in the the, the 50s in the 60s you had a, a unifying thing i might not like this brother next to me but none of us can ride the bus there you go unifying thing and so therefore here's what we will do there will be an economic effect and we will shut this thing down. So a lot of people will change policy because they're choked economically. A lot of people will change policy because they're moved by the heart. But one way or the other, policy changes. The question becomes, can something like this really change with the players themselves rising up, taking a stand, doing something that undercuts the finances of the league in a very fundamental way? Because it's probably going to take something like that to have a permanent, lasting, sustainable change.
3: Uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, do we have Lauren back? Lauren, uh, your assessment um, uh, on this uh, Brian Flores uh, lawsuit. The judge saying, no, nah, we're moving forward.
7: Uh, yeah, I'm glad the judges say That's basically it. Once you get back past the motion to dismiss, you just won the case. And they're going to be settling, probably, because I really doubt that the NFL is going to want all the details of what they do on Front Street. You know, I doubt that. So he just won the case, effectively. Uh, that's great that, the, you know, that this case is going forward. It would be great to see the details, though, on discovery. Uh, and boy, would it be great to see some depositions <laughs> on this case, to see the inner workings of the NFL. But, effectively, I think he just won, and I would be surprised if the NFL did not just hand him a lot of money to, to avoid the details of what they do being public. Well, you know, I hope he, I hope he
3: does what Colin Kaepernick chose not to do, and that is not settle.
7: Right. Right. You know, he may choose, he may choose to do that, uh, and that would be quite exciting uh, because then you get into a, a bunch of paper discovery, and of course a bunch of discovery on the record, and and in fact probably a trial. So. That would be uh, a big reveal on the details of, of how, the, uh, uh, how the NFL works. We already know how the NFL works. We don't really need to see the detail, but it would be very exciting to see the details. And this is really a great example of, of what happens when you bring a case and there's some merit to what you're bringing, which I think we all knew there was. But uh, it'll, it'll be surprising to me if the NFL doesn't try to avoid a trial. Well,
3: I absolutely believe putting them on front street uh, is really important. All right, folks, a Wisconsin man will spend time in prison for making racially charged threats toward black people. 45-year-old William McDonald was sentenced to 30 months in prison for intimidating black residents, demanding they leave his neighborhood. McDonald pleaded guilty to vandalizing a black woman's vehicle parked outside her apartment by slashing her tires and smashing her windshield. In March of 2021, McDonald also left a note on his her car filled with racial slurs and threats. He also did the same thing to another uh, African American in April 2022. McDonald's sentence will be followed by three years of supervised release. That's how you do it: you send these racists to prison, Mustafa.
8: Without a doubt, that's the only thing that's really going to get their attention. You know, is putting them in jail and then sometimes hitting them in the pocket as well. Those are the two things that get their attention because we know that white supremacy is up. The statistics show us that, and we also know that white nationalism and hate crimes are also up. Um, So the only way you're going to get their attention and hopefully change some minds, ain't going to change everybody's, put their ass in jail.
3: That's it, folks. In a powerful and long-overdue ceremony, Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C., finally awarded high school diplomas to 24 black deaf students who were denied in the early 1950s sarah's graduation ceremony was hosted by the university center for black deaf studies and honored black teachers and students black students were transferred to separate schools due to protests against integration by white parents however in 1952 louise b miller and other parents successfully sued the, the, the district of columbia's board of education leading to a court ruling that allowed black deaf students to attend a segregated Kendall school. The school's Board of Trustees expressed deep regret for, per- for perpetuating these injustices and apologized to all 24 students for denying them their diplomas. In addition to the graduation ceremony, Gallaudet dedicated a memorial to Miller and designated July 22nd as Kendall 24 Day to commemorate this critical moment in their history. Hmm. How about, you know, I don't know, Lauren, creating scholarships for their descendants? <laughs>
0: at PurdueGlobal.edu.
7: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what Georgetown did, I believe, right? I mean, I think that would have been great to to bring money into the picture. Uh, and I'm not sure. Again, you know, 1952, and we're just getting around to doing this. Uh, it's great that they've done it. But it is amazing how long it takes for justice to happen for African-Americans in this country, whether it's the murder of Malcolm X or something as simple as a graduation ceremony. Uh, I'm not sure why uh, it takes so long for these things to happen, particularly in Washington, D.C., where the Library of Congress sitting there and all these historians and all of these people with the knowledge they have about what has happened in this country. But it is great to see these images. It's great that Gallaudet finally did this. But yes, you're right, Roland. It would have been nice to meet this with some money, a scholarship, a set of scholarships, et cetera, and so on. All right,
3: folks, Uh, LeBron James' son, Bronny, suffered a cardiac arrest while playing basketball Monday. The USC uh, student uh, was a high school American, collapsed on the court during practice. He was rushed to the hospital and treated for his condition. The 18-year-old athlete is one of the basketball's most celebrated young prospects and ranks uh, in the uh, number one among the nation's top ten highest NIL valuations. The cardiac arrest circumstances remain unclear and the family spokesperson has requested privacy. Quote, yesterday while practicing, Bronnie James suffered a cardiac arrest. Medical staff was able to treat Bronnie and take him to the hospital. He's now in stable condition and no longer in ICU. We ask for respect and privacy for the James family and we will update the media when there is more information. LeBron and Savannah wish to publicly send their deepest thanks and appreciation to the USC medical and, a- and athletic staff for their incredible work and dedication to the safety of their athletes. Uh, the thing, of course, you always have these stuck-on stupid people, Mustafa, people like Elon Musk already trying to come out and say, oh, it could be because he got the vaccine and all sorts of stuff like that. I mean, I wish these yahoos would literally would shut the hell up
8: yeah if they want to say something they should be sending prayers if elon wants to do something why don't he dedicate uh some resources to medical research or to you know the underserved areas in our country where black and brown folks are where they can't get proper medical uh you know treatment
3: and those types of things so if you want to do something do something productive well how about this elon pay the black workers in africa who you fired <laughs> How about that? All right, y'all, hold tight one second. When we come back, we'll chat with the new president of the Rainbow Push Coalition, Reverend Frederick D. Haynes III, next on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Blackstone Network. 0196 the cash app is dollar sign rm unfiltered paypal is r martin unfiltered venmo is rm unfiltered zale is rolling at rolandsmartin.com
7: on the next get wealthy with me deborah owens america's wealth coach financial literacy without it wealth is just a pipe dream and yet Half of our schools in this country don't
9: even teach it to our kids. You're going to hear from a woman who's determined
7: to change all that. Not only here, but around the world. World
10: of Money is the leading provider of immersive financial education. For children, ages seven to 18, we provide 120
7: online and classroom hours of financial education. That's right here on get wealthy on Black Star Network. Hi, my name is Brady Rice. I'm from Houston, Texas.
9: My name is Sharon Williams. I'm from Dallas, Texas.
10: Right now, I'm rolling with Roland Martin, unfiltered, uncut, unplugged, and undamn believable. You hear me?
3: Well, it's been quite the busy time for the new president of Rainbow Push Coalition uh, since taking over about um, more than a week ago. And he joins us right now, Reverend Frederick D. Haynes III. Thank you so very much. Uh, First and foremost, uh, I take it you've been uh, just a little bit busy with all the folks uh, reaching out to you, uh, now assuming this new responsibility.
15: Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Roland, and thank you again for continuing uh, to be our voice as well as to offer a vision of the path forward. Uh, As always, you were on the case right there, on the scene, I should say, uh, when Reverend Jackson made the announcement, and so I thank you for that. Uh, Yes, this has been a whirlwind of a few weeks, well, not even a few weeks, uh, 10 days, and it's understandable, given the magnitude of Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson uh, is one of the heroes of our history, Uh, who literally can be credited with making a significant, liberating, empowering impact on the world, uh, but especially on behalf of those who have had no voice. You don't have — you don't register 7 million new voters in 84 and 88 and not make a significant impact. You don't change the rules for the way the Democratic Party was nominating or giving out delegates that eventuates in the 08 election of Barack Obama uh, without your making this kind of announcement, uh, having reverberations that spread throughout the world. And so, uh, given the magnitude of Jesse Jackson, uh, my phone has blown up uh, in a way that reflects his greatness, his stature, but also it reflects the fact that in his greatness he has seen that there is a need for transition, uh, that we have to institutionalize what we do so that generations, plural, benefit from a vision and not just one personality. And so I salute Reverend Jackson. uh, Again, uh, the phone has been blowing up, but it has a lot to do with who he is. And of course, uh, I do maintain that uh, Reverend Jackson did not select me because I hadn't been doing anything. Uh, he selected me because there is work that has been done, work that needs to be done. And so I think my phone blowing up has a lot to do with that. Plus, I know Roland Martin, plus uh, the are meeting in Dallas beginning tomorrow.
3: Absolutely. And I will be there. We'll also be broadcasting uh, from there tomorrow. And uh, I am set uh, to announce uh, a major announcement with Uh, Alpha Phi Alpha uh, folks, so y'all want to tune in to that. We'll be covering that live uh, right here on the show. When we talk about priorities, you know, what do you see as the top uh, two priorities you have uh, moving forward?
15: Well, sadly, uh, the priorities that Jackson was articulating and working toward in 73 still are apropos in 2023. Number one, economic justice. Uh, As you well know, Operation Breadbasket birthed out of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the vision of Dr. King to push for economic justice, especially for a people who had fought so hard for civil rights but did not have silver rights. There's that classic uh, scene in the movie Selma where King uh, is greeted by Ralph Abernathy, trying to lift his spirits by saying, you know, keep your eyes on the prize. He said, what prize, Ralph? Uh, what is a prize if we can integrate a lunch counter, but we don't have the money to buy a hamburger and we don't have the education to read the menu. And so I think those uh, are priorities that speak to where we are in 2023. And that is we do need economic justice, economic justice. When you think about the fact, what, 2053, uh, Roland, uh, our net, wealth as a people will be at zero, it's forecasted. Not only that, uh, but when you think about the fact that right now uh, the wealth gap between blacks and whites is at 10 to 1. And so we have a responsibility to carry on that legacy. As Jesse said back in the day, we don't need charity. We want parity that comes through equality of opportunity. We need equity. That is what we need. So the fight for economic justice is going to continue as we fight those economic predators that prey on our community. But at the same time, uh, we recognize, for example, in a state like Texas, where uh, we are based, that uh, procurement opportunities for Black businesses is at less than 1%. Uh, we don't need charity. We want parity. We want equality of opportunity. We want equity. So that's priority number one: economic justice. Priority number two: uh, Jesse Jackson again hit it off real hit it real well when he was talking about educational justice. And so, at the, on the one hand, he's saying the students in economically deprived schools, I am somebody. You go ahead and. And 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 do your best so that you can have the kinds of grades that reflect uh, the greatness that is in you. But at the same time, we're challenging those educational institutions uh, that make policy. Uh, and so we see in Florida, we see in Texas, an all-out war on the education of our students. And so those have to be the priorities. But Roland, I've got to add one more because it reflects where we are now. And that is we've got to have an agenda for environmental justice because the bottom line is the planet is experiencing a slow burn. That means our communities are on fire because of the war on the war on the environment and the war on the environment has our communities on the front lines of catching ecological hail and the ecological hail we are catching again we must wage war against it and so that reflects not only what rainbow push has done but what we need to continue
3: to do uh and i'm sure that is a uh, music to the ears Mustafa Santiago Ali, uh, who's on our pan- panel, former uh, official with the Environmental Protection Agency, Mustafa.
8: Yeah, well, Rev, congratulations. And, and I appreciate you talking you. about the economics and the environment. Um, so folks are going to expect me to talk about the environment, but I'm going to go to the economics. I'm curious. As we see corporations not living up to their sets of commitments after our dear brother George Floyd was murdered, as we see hundreds of billions of dollars from this administration uh, being put out the door, How do we make sure that our communities actually get their fair share?
15: Well, I think, again, we take a page from what was done back in the day, and that is we know we have economic strength in terms of our consumer spending. We have to continue to teach our dollar cents and expose what Reverend Jackson and Rainbow Push did, or I, sh- I should say Operation Push did back in the day And Breadbasket was literally give a report card of what institutions were doing and then put them on blast to basically say this institution is not engaging in giving us our fair share. And when we put them on blast—and guess what? They did that back in the day, Mustafa, without social media without a cell phone we have access now they didn't have Roland march and unfiltered and so one of the things that we have already discussed doing and that is giving a report card to all of these entities that benefit from black dollars and yet don't treat us like they have good sense and again that goes even to our government uh, as I've already pointed out, in Texas and Texas is not alone. Uh, our businesses make less than one percent uh, receive less than one percent of procurement opportunities and that needs to be put on blast. Uh, That needs to be something that we rally against. And again, we have a friend in the White House, supposedly, who says, I'm going to have your back. One way of having our back is what's happening with our resources in our hands. And so we're going to put that on blast because, again, that's the rootage that we come from. And we can still reap fruitage if we use those old and and proven methods.
3: Uh, I think you're right. I mean, uh, uh, the, NA- the NAACP used to do that under uh, President Kwesi Mfume. Uh, I've said to Derek Johnson, I've said to Mark Morial the National Urban League, that needs to return. We need to have yeah. that report card on the hotel industry, uh, on media companies, and all of these companies. Yeah. Uh, we're spending a lot of our money. Uh, my deal is that if we have that report card and we know who gets A's, B's, C, D's, and F's, it's important because, frankly, what I'm tired of, I'm tired of these corporations coming to civil rights groups and giving a pittance $10,000, $50,000, $100,000 uh, in hell. Even look, Wells Fargo did a $50 million donation to the But how much money, how much black wealth was lost during the home foreclosure crisis via the practices of Wells Fargo? I guarantee you, it's more than $50 million.
15: Without question, more than $50 million and how many black folks lost their homes and they have not been repaired. And so, again, those institutions, we need to issue a report card, a grade on all of them, and then not settle for, and I thank you for that, Roland, settle for them giving us a ban... or buying a banquet table and thinking that that is going to satisfy economic parity. Again, I'm going to exegete in, a, in, in this administration what it means to have parity and not settle for charity. And as far as I'm concerned, if you take out an ad in my book, if you buy a table at my banquet, that's charity. That's not parity. We deserve parity because our dollars help to keep these businesses afloat. And in instances like Wells Fargo that economically pimp our communities, they still make m- money at the expense of black pain and that has to be exposed and it must come to an end.
7: Lauren. Reverend Haynes, great seeing you, great seeing you in there. Um, Thank you, Lauren,
15: good to see you.
7: Great seeing you. I, you know, I just, I know it's early. You probably haven't thought that much about this. But I wondered if Rainbow Push was thinking about being a part of the civil rights meetings at the White House. It might just be a geographical thing that's always like the NAACP and NUL and the ones that are in, like, the D.C. area.
3: No, that's not what but... it is. No, no, that's not what it is. No, I'm no, no. I'm uh-huh. going to go ahead and say it. And what it is is all those other organizations are using the phrase called legacy civil rights organizations,
8: okay? okay. And so the phrase,
3: I want you to understand the phrases, just like in black owned media, legacy black owned media, which which means a black enterprise, essence, ebony, urban one, but they also want to leave out black papers. I'm like, hell, you want to talk about legacy? They all came before any of those folks came. And so what you had is, what you had is the legacy civil rights folks have purposely Let me be perfectly clear, y'all. They have purposely left out Rainbow Push. They do not want repairs of the breach and the Poor People's Campaign in the same meeting. They do not want color of change there. They do not want Black Voters Matter there. They don't want Until Freedom there. And so that's why. And I'm saying it right now. Enough of this legacy BS Okay, if the White House is gonna have meetings with civil rights organizations, it needs to be the old ones and the new ones because that's how stuff gets changed. That's why they've had this, the distinction, Lauren. Go ahead with your question.
7: Okay, so, Reverend Haynes... <laughs> Roland, can this I just night... say the
15: doors of the church are open now? <laughs> <Damn>.
7: <laughs> <laughs> maybe this night will kick off that effort, uh, Reverend Haynes, to get you into the White House meetings, because I just think that it is interesting to me that an organization as old as Rainbow Push would not be considered legacy, but okay. I think that it would be... I mean, I, I know that that's probably something you haven't thought about. I mean, you just got into the position. But uh, I I will ask at the White House about that. Uh, Roland just educated me on the details of that. But, you know, I I wanted to know what you thought about that. I'm sure you would love to be at the White House. I'm sure your answer is, I'd love to be at the White House. But how hard would you push for that uh, if that opportunity presented itself to be in in some of these meetings? Oh, without
15: question. Rainbow Push not only has a constituency, uh, we have a vision Uh, And let's be real, I don't know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if anybody has ever registered as many voters as Rainbow Push under the leadership of Reverend Jesse Jackson. And so if they're serious about that kind of track record continuing, then they must go ahead and correct uh, what has been uh, an oversight, and that's being quite generous. Uh, But without question, we want to be there uh, because we do have voters that we are going to register uh, in that tradition. We do have uh, the coattails of Reverend Jackson that literally, even though he did not win the nomination, we can't count the number of Black elected officials uh, who, who were swept into office because of what he did. And so we got the legacy, and now we have the energy Uh, We have the wisdom, and and we have the connects with the community. And so we we deserve a seat there at the table. And uh, we also have the Shirley Chisholm spirit that says if we don't get our own seat at the table...
0: At PurdueGlobal.edu,
15: we can
6: bring
3: uh, absolutely, uh, Joe,
6: Reverend. Congratulations on uh, your uh, uh, position. Uh, clearly, this is Thank an you, obvious Jeff. and 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 uh, a good uh, uh, you know evolution of your leadership, longstanding. So, you talked about this a, a bit previously. I'm not going to change my question. and Maybe get a little bit more. Talk about energy and urgency. The way that I see it. Uh, you know, uh, the urgency, hopefully, would create the energy towards working towards a goal. How do we take this incredible legacy? You know, uh, most black politicians of consequence, particularly on the national level, have Jesse Jackson to thank, local politicians, etc., people all over the place. There's right. no question about that. Right. How do we take advantage of that legacy, but at the same time, without being sheepish, use the opportunity that transition creates to give us yeah. both the energy and the urgency that allows Rainbow Push to get a new look, not only of its historical significance, but of what needs to happen right now.
15: And thank you for that question. Uh, A, I must say with gratitude that the energy uh, that has been coming our way since the announcement uh, a week ago Sunday has been gratifying It's been strong, and in our meetings at Rainbow Push, uh, we have discussed harnessing this energy, and especially, as you've noted, in light of the state of emergency that we find ourselves in as a nation, as a community, which should really fuel our sense of urgency in addressing the issues that are happening and hitting our communities right now. It's crystal clear the Supreme Court is waging war on justice. And not only are they waging war on justice, but the Supreme Court, while waging war on justice—a part of justice has to do with accountability—they won't even hold accountable Members of the court who are engaged in unethical practices, uh, you know. Of course, I'm in Dallas, and uh, Clarence Thomas has a sugar daddy who is pimping him, and so what well. that is doing to uh, democracy all stir up a sense of urgency. and And let me just let me just put it to you like this: If it does not energize us that a Trump appointed judge in Tulsa, Oklahoma, refused—throughout the case—of the survivors of the most vicious, deadliest race massacre on U.S. soil in the history of this country, if that does not remind us that elections matter—because if Clinton had appointed that judge, I don't think the outcome would have been the same. But again, that denial of reparations is not just about those beloved three survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre. It's really about what this nation thinks about a people who built it for free, and not only did we build it for free, but now they are trying to even revise, engage in revisionist history, what Jacob Carruthers called historicide killing memory, killing the truth, in order to further their neo-fascist agenda. We are in a state of emergency, and now it's my determination that we harness the energy during this season of transition, focus on the issues, and make sure we get a message out while offering an alternative vision of what democracy ought to look like.
3: Uh, Two more questions. Uh, One, I want to go back to the money. Uh, because that is critically important. And and what I keep saying to people is you have folks who are fighting reparations. Got it. Understand it. But there are billions of dollars being spent right now. Right now. Billions upon billions of dollars. City, school boards, counties, the state, the federal government. The federal government, $560 billion is annually spent In federal contracts, African-Americans are receiving 1.67% of those contracts. Nearly a billion dollars being spent on advertising, $600 by the Department of Defense alone. Black-owned media is getting 1% of that $1 billion. Then we talk about the spending in corporate America. Billions and billions upon billions of dollars, small amounts of money. Uh, You've got these black board members who are on these boards... Because of the work of Rainbow Push and Reverend Jackson, and many of them are sitting their asses there quiet, saying nothing, not advocating for anybody black, but they're getting paid and getting their stock options. And so I would also hope that, that, that black board members will be challenged to say, you are pu- you were put there not to enrich yourself, but to ensure that black people as a collective are getting paid.
15: Right, and tell the whole truth, Roland Martin. Uh, Reverend Jackson opened those doors along with others who advocated. uh, The door swung open, and now we have too many of us who get there. And as easy a target as Clarence Thomas is, you are betraying your community if you get to that seat. And that seat does not reflect a transformation because of the work that you should be doing. And so uh, without question, uh, I agree with you 100% uh, on the fact that you have—again, I pointed out, you know, here in Dallas—I'll go, I'll go to Dallas now—when uh, it comes to procurement opportunities, they're giving out contracts at the city level, at the county level. Uh, I just saw a report. At the county level, the DFW Airport, the Dallas Community College District, uh, and other entities of the county, when it comes to the money they take in, it's in, of course, the billions of dollars. I think the report said 25 to $30 billion. And yet, when it comes to contracts and opportunities, we are making at 1% of that, even though we are one-third of the population in the county. And so we're going to expose that, not only expose that, but do all we can to turn up the heat so that they can see the light. You're so right, Roland, there is money out there that is jumping over our communities and continuing to go into the same greedy hands, and that pipeline has to come to a stop. And it has to be diverted to the communities of those who have done so much for this country, again, without receiving the kind of reciprocity that we deserve.
3: You mentioned um, voter turnout, registered people to vote. In Texas in 2022, 75% of all voters 30 and under did not vote in the election. If 25% of them had voted, Greg Abbott ain't governor and Dan Patrick, he's that lieutenant governor. Uh, You have, today, you have fewer African Americans who self-identify as Democrat, although they lean Democrat and vote that way. And so, uh, what do you hope to achieve in terms of really reaching young voters, walking folks through about public policy, explaining how the dots are connected, but also getting them to understand they cannot sit out of any of these elections if we want to change public policy? Thank you.
15: And thank you for using the language walking them through. There's a generation that has come of age without access in their educational process to civics or government classes, and it's reflected in a lot of what they say. I was teaching at Paul Quinn College several years ago, and a young man said to me, I don't vote because the electoral college ignores my vote and they're gonna put in who they want to put in. We had a conversation, and over the course of that semester, I discovered, again, his lack of access to civics and government in his high school uh, matriculation. And so that's why it it, it just hit me that we cannot— we can no longer say folk died for the right to vote, and a generation says, I'm going to vote now because folk died for that. No, we have to slow walk them through what public policy does how public policy has personal consequences. And here's the piece I shared in our board meeting uh, recently, Roland, and that is we have to have voter registration with an educational agenda. And by that, I mean we are educating. Again, you use the language slow walking. We're educating them while we are registering them to vote as to what it looks like to have an empowered vote. An empowered vote is an empowered vote with an agenda. We have an agenda that we need to articulate and connect the dots between the agenda we envision, the needs the community has, and the power of the ballot. That is what we're going to do as we slow walk them through the voter registration and voter education process, voting with an agenda.
3: Well, um, all these issues you're laying out, we obviously focus on those here as well, and we're going to keep doing so because we've got to be educated and keep our keep our eyes on the prize in terms of where we're trying to get what we're trying to do. Reverend Haynes, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Frat. Appreciate appreciate you, Frat. See you at the convention tomorrow. Indeed, I'll be in Dallas tomorrow for the Alpha Convention. Thanks a bunch. Uh, and to all the folks who are watching, again, I'll be broadcasting live from the Alpha Convention tomorrow. In the first hour and the second hour, we'll pick up live coverage of the uh, public program where this. I'll, I'll be participating in a major announcement uh, that Alpha Alpha is going to be making. Uh, it's one that will attract national attention. You don't want to miss that. All right, got to go to the break. We'll be right back. Uh, Roland Martin, focused on the Black Sun Network.
14: My early days on the road, I've learned... Well, first of all, as a musician, uh, I studied not only, uh, piano, but I was also drummer and percussion. I was all-city percussion as well, so I was one of the best in the city on percussion. There you go. Also studied, uh, trumpet, uh, cello, violin, and bass. And any other instrument I could get my hand on. Mm-hmm. And, and and with that study I learned again what was for me. I learned to what what it meant to do what the instruments in the orchestra meant to each other in the relationships. Right. right. So that prepared me to be a leader. That prepared me to lead orchestras and to conduct orchestras. That prepared me to know Uh, To be a leader of men, they have to respect you and know that you know the music. You have to be the teacher of the music. You have to know the music better than anything. There you go. Right, so you can't walk in unprepared.
9: On the streets, a horrific scene, white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence.
3: White people are losing their damn minds.
15: Pain, pretending to be Roland Martin. Holla! You ain't got to wear black and
0: gold every damn place, okay? Ooh, I'm an alpha, yay! All right, you're 58
6: years
2: old, it's over. And you are now watching Roland Martin, unfiltered, uncut,
3: unplugged, and undamn believable. President Joe Biden's appointed Shawanza Goff as the new director of legislative affairs, making her the first black woman to hold. That position, a veteran congressional aide, Goff previously worked under uh, Louisa Terrell. Before joining the Biden administration, she worked as the floor director for Congressman Steny Hoyer, a Maryland Democrat who has served in House Democratic leadership for decades. At the White House, Goff played a significant role in securing the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson and worked on important legislation related to infrastructure, guns, and semiconductors. You know, um, uh, Lauren, a lot of people sit here and, and talk about, uh, well, you know, you, you don't have this and you don't have that, Biden hasn't done this, hasn't done that. But let's just be clear. You got more black folks who are in senior positions in the Biden administration than you had under Obama.
7: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, the Katanji Brown-Jackson uh, nomination is, is massive, massive Joe Biden activity. Obviously, Shawanza getting this is fantastic. OMB director, fantastic. Joe Biden has done a lot of things that I, I think only maybe Bill Clinton... Uh, Bill Clinton had, like, four black folks in his cabinet, I believe. I have to go double-check that. But, yeah, Joe Biden is putting black people in charge of stuff, and it's big stuff. And so that really matters. Um, There's always more that can be done. There's no doubt about it. But these are not symbolic positions when you're legislative, when you're leg affairs. You're basically communicating with members of Congress all day. She's the perfect person for it. She worked on Capitol Hill for years on the floor for Steny Hoyer. And uh, it's great to see. It's a great pick. Uh, Mustafa.
8: Yeah, just like Lauren said, it, it is really a great pick. When I worked on Capitol Hill... You know, I had a chance to meet uh, Shawanza and then after that, and she's got, you know, she has the resume, but she also has the personality that's going to be necessary. And then just speaking about President Biden, I mean, if you look throughout numerous, uh, both uh, agencies and departments, there are black folks uh, who are in very critical positions. So this is another piece to the puzzle that will be uh, important, especially for this last year as they try and get some other things done.
6: Joe. AGREED. I mean, um, she certainly seems to be the right pick. Uh, Biden probably doesn't get as much credit as he deserves for the quality of the appointments that he makes. And even if you go over to judges, uh, there are a lot of folks that have been appointed, um, probably did better job this than Obama did in terms of getting people that weren't necessarily uh, big law or along uh, that um, majority-acknowledged pedigree line. Uh, Joe Biden has done an excellent job of that. That also means that he listens uh, to his staff, the people that are that, that surround him, uh, including his vice president. So I'm um, looking forward to her success. She's got her work cut out for her, uh, particularly getting closer to an election. Of course, uh, you know, the other side's not going to want to do a whole lot, uh, but hopefully uh, Biden would be reelected. This would be this would continue and there could be some other things that could be
3: accomplished. Uh, Indeed, indeed. All right, folks, we appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Joe Mustafa Lawin, thanks for joining us today on the panel.
15: If you dare.